Welcome to Equisport Radio, your VIP pass to the world of horse racing. Down the stretch they come, cast digging in at the rail. Les Salzman, take you inside the gates, behind the scenes, to the heart of horse racing. Equisport Radio. Get tied on. And welcome. This is Les Salzman, and you're listening to the Equisport News Hubrail Insider. Three very, very interesting guests this morning Anthony McDonald, Maggie Audley, and Freddie Hudson, all with great standard bread roots. Lots to cover, so let's get started. And they spin off the final turn in into the stretch. McDonald pops the plugs on Bugger Bruiser to see if he's got anything left. Outside in second, Crafty Master comes to him now. Three of clubs in that pocket spot third. Bugger Bruiser digs in. Crafty Master on the outside comes to him now. Bugger Bruiser tough as nails. Crafty Master on the outside rushing up late. Cluster Hanover coming on with speed. Three of clubs escapes late. Bugger Bruiser on the inside. Bugger Bruiser with an Ontario Sire Stakes Super Final sensational score. 150 and three. What a mile for Bugger Bruiser. And with me this morning, Anthony McDonald, who was responsible for that race. Anthony, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good, man. You? Excellent. Excellent. How's the weather up there? Cold. That's actually sunny today, but it's cold. Uh, it's been cold all week. Just miserable. It was nice last week. You know, we thought we were going to get into get into an early spring, and then uh, winter came back. So it was cold for about four or five days. A little nicer now, but it's not very helpful for the for the track conditions when it's cold and hot. It just ruins the track. Now, where exactly are you located? About seven minutes, uh, seven minutes southwest of Mohawk Raceway. So right in Campbellville, uh, right in between Highway 6 and Guelph Line. An easy drive to the track, though. Oh, yeah. If you're going to Mohawk, it's literally seven minutes. It's about 20 minutes to Flamborough Downs, 30 minutes to Grand River Raceway, and about 35 minutes to Woodbine. So it's it's close to a lot of tracks, yeah. A great location. Now, your family's been in the business for a couple of generations now. Uh, is everybody in that area now currently? or? Uh, no. I mean, I was born and raised in Prince Edward Island, and... and um, yeah, my father and my mother had a had a hobby farm, and my father worked as a college professor, and my my uh, and then with the Alcohol Gaming Commission in the Maritimes, and my mother was the photographer uh, at the racetrack. So my brothers and I were always at the track. Um, so it just it kind of worked its way into our blood, and as most people know, with horses, once it gets in, it never leaves. So, um, you know, I moved away when I was 19 years old to be a to be a groom, and and uh, worked my way up from a groom to a trainer and and a driver and and a, and an owner now also now when, when you made that move you know because dad's in academia and you you make the move to go to the racetrack how, how was it around the house how was that first it, Christmas? it went over just about as well as a lead balloon it didn't go okay. very well my uh, actually my younger brother mark was first to leave and then uh i was just finishing up my my education and uh and he used to call every every week, every day to tell me how good it was and how much money he was making. So, um, you know, when you're 19 years old and, you know, it, it's different. It was I think looking back on it, it was different for us because we knew what we wanted to be, right? We wanted to be harness racing drivers and, 
and be a part of a be a part of a great game and um and you know for a lot of these younger kids growing up they go to school and hey, a perfect example is my brother James you know he's one of the one of the top drivers right now in, in Ontario and you know he went to university and he he pursued other careers and really not a lot of people know this but James didn't even touch a brush probably till he was 20 or 21 years old and you know you look back at his career now as a driver and it's it's really remarkable but I know um, he's tearing him up up there right well, yeah, he, uh, you know, he was in school and he didn't know what he wanted to be. And he was like a lot of kids, you know, just having a good time in university and partying. And, and, uh, he came up here to work and, you know, we worked him real hard and, and, um, he decided that he didn't mind it. You know, he, he, James is a good worker and he's a, you know, not a lot of people know this. James is a good trainer. And, uh, you know, he's proven out that, it, that he's, you know, he's a fantastic driver also. And, you know, when, when Mark and I were coming up through the ranks, you know, people know know my brother Mark McDonald from winning a lot of races all over North America. But uh, he was a very accomplished trainer before he ever ever uh, ever became a you know the O'Brien board winning driver that he is. You know, I've always be- believed that you know, and there's a lot of guys that will dis- disprove this theory. But it's so much easier for a driver to be a great driver or a really really good driver when they're sitting behind a horse because they've been underneath the horse. And I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, I mean, some people just have it. You know what I mean? Uh, you look at it. You look at again. Looking back at James, he didn't have that that culture growing up that we did. He didn't have the horse racing in his blood. He was around, but it wasn't something he wanted to be, right? So he didn't spend a lot of time at the track. But he made up for it when he first moved up here. We worked him excessively hard. And you know, you look at another kid like Scott Zeron. Um, you know, Scotty didn't didn't. Uh, you know, he didn't grow up cleaning stalls and harnessing horses his father like most of us his father wanted wanted his kid to be you know in academics of some sort and he, he has a good education scotty to fall back on but it doesn't look like he's going to need to i mean he's uh you know he's one of the best drivers around right now and and uh, and deservedly so but there's a kid there that didn't he didn't uh you know he didn't grow up cleaning stalls and stuff he, he went about it a different way but he's got a lot of talent obviously his, his father passed a lot of, a lot down to him and and um, you know, look what you get. So everybody comes about it in different ways. But yeah, uh, Mark and I definitely we, we we came up through the trenches for sure. Yeah, you know, I was talking to Scotty last week down here in Palm in uh, Delray, and the one thing that impresses me about him, he looks like an athlete. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, Scotty takes very yeah. good care of himself. He's a very unique individual. He he has a very different outlook on life, and and. Uh, you know, um, I got a lot of respect for that kid, man. He, 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 uh, he, um, he's very unique. You know, he, he looks at everything in, in a very objective point of view and, and doesn't get too emotional about stuff. And, you know, he, he's, he, he deserves everything he got. You know, not a lot of people know this. You know, a lot of people had a lot of, had a lot of reservations about Scott Darren because he was Ricky's son and, you know, nobody wanted to give him a free ride or help him out. But Scotty put the time in, man. You know, he went to Flamborough, Clinton, everywhere he could. Everywhere he could drive a racehorse, if he had the time to drive them, he was driving them. And, and uh, you know, my hat's off to him. And, and a lot of people don't understand how difficult it is to be a harness racing driver. And it takes it takes a lot of your time. And then once you are there, and once you're trying to build yourself up, it takes all your time. And that's the one thing I don't miss about driving full-time is, is not being around my family, not being around my kids. You know, when you're a, a full-time driver, unless you're in that elite top top grouping, you know, there is no, hey, let's plan out a vacation next March or April or, you know, take the kids to the amusement park. You're always going. You're always driving because if you're not, somebody else is taking your business. And it's it's a really, really difficult 
uh, grind, and it's really it's a part of the industry I don't I don't miss to be honest. Now you have a couple of kids, right? You have a couple of kids at home. Yeah, six-year-old daughter, two-year-old son. Um, you know, it's I guess it changes everybody in a different way, but I think the the one thing that changed me completely was was politics. Actually, it it, it opened a lot of doors for me. I worked there before, and it, it changed my outlook on a lot of things that go on inside this industry. And and it's the people in this industry, you know, we believe that we're kind of walled off, right? We don't have a connection to the outside world, and you know we're a unique industry, and that couldn't be further from the truth. And, and being in politics, and actually knocking on doors and talking to people one on one, gave me a, a, a completely eye-opening experience of, of what the general public is, what it represents, and who's in it. These are people just like us. They may come from a little bit different walk of life, but they're every bit just like us. And and that, uh, to be honest, that's how the stable.ca was born. Let's go back to the politics for just a couple of seconds, and then I want to talk about stable.ca because it it is unique. For the listeners that don't know, tell us a little bit about the politics, how how you got in, what what went on. You know, I guess everybody, uh, when you go through life, it's a little different for everyone. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that things happen for a reason. And, you know, in 2012, my my wife and I just had our daughter, you know, mortgage payments car payments, and we woke up one day to the to the same news everybody else in Ontario did, that we were going to prospectively lose everything, and, and uh, it wasn't a good feeling by any by any stretch, and, you know, I did what everybody did. I thought that somebody was going to look out for us, and somebody was paying attention, and somebody was fighting for us, and that something good would come of it, and it looked the further and further it went down the road that that just simply wasn't the case, that it really was a reality. We were going to lose everything, you know, um, and you got to understand the climate at the time. Pennsylvania, New York, and these other jurisdictions certainly weren't opening their arms to everybody. They were worried also that Ontario horsemen were going to flood the market everywhere and take their jobs. So um, it was a it was a really uh, a real scary time for a lot of people here, and I was one of them. And um, we had a rally at Queens Park. That's where all the politics, provincial politics, are done in Ontario, downtown Toronto. We'd rally on the front lawn of Queens Park, and <laughs> they, uh, I forget who it was. Uh, I think it was John Snowden actually asked me to speak uh, at the rally, and you know I had no problem voicing my opinion. I I certainly wasn't a, a public speaker at the time, but I certainly had no problem speaking to and speaking for um, horse people that that you could see, you know, either crying or tears in their eyes all over the place. And and uh, I got there and I spoke, and and um, two of the political parties came down and asked me if I would be willing to help out in my riding of Guelph, where there's 122,000 people. I originally said no, and you know I don't like politicians, and I certainly don't like politics. But as time wore on, we had another rally, and then I went to another rally, and I'd spoke at both of them. And over that six or seven week period, nothing happened. Not a thing happened. There was no movement. Nobody came to our rescue. Nobody said, "Hey, we're going to do this or we're going to do that." There was nothing. There was still that firm date of, you know, when that clock hits zero, you have nothing. And the last time I spoke, I remember. Uh, um, the leader of the party came down, Tim Hudak came down, and he said, listen, you know, you seem to be able to resonate and I, with the people in the crowd. And I said, well, that's easy. They're, they're our people. They're my people. And he said, well, we need somebody that's going to be able to speak on behalf of the PC party in Guelph, and we, we'd like you to run. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I was like, what do you mean run? He said, we want you to be our, uh, you know, our, sort of our flag bearer in Guelph. We want you to be our candidate in Guelph. Um... 
so I had thought about it a little bit, and you know, at the same time, you know, when it, what the deciding factor was this: if if I didn't do something for the people of this industry, if I didn't if I didn't try and help out in any way I could, you know, what was I going to tell my kids when they grew up? You know, what what was I going to what was I going to say to my daughter? You know, if it ever come up, you know, what happened to horse racing? Why aren't you in horse racing anymore? And so that was a deciding factor. I decided I would help, and for for three and a half years, I I um, campaigned. I knocked on doors, and I um, you know I did what I could, and you know I lost, but in losing, it, I won something bigger than I ever ever thought I would imagine, and that was a a real outlook on on how this industry is perceived by the general public. And, um, you know, as I said, the stable.ca was born and the information that I get, that I gathered over that three and a half year period and those 12 to 15,000 doors that I, that I had opened and sometimes slammed in my face <laughs> was information that, that nobody else in this industry has ever had. And that's a one-on-one, uh, a one-on-one poll, real poll of how people feel about horse racing, horse ownership, horse wagering. Um, in the industry itself. So for that, I, I'm, I'm forever grateful. And, and uh, I think what we built here is something that can really help this industry. And, and that's that's what it's come to. And then stable.ca is o- almost an extension of that, isn't it? It's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's, you know, every, every time I spoke to anybody about this industry in the general public, it was always... Um, you know, I would always ask them if they'd ever owned a horse, if they'd ever been to the racetrack, and it was always no and no. The reason I've never owned a horse is because it's really expensive and it's complex. The reason I've never been to the track is because I have no reason to go, and I don't like wagering and gambling, so I have no reason to uh, to attend the track. Although I might someday, I just never have. And um, it was always over and over and over again the same thing. So I had said to my wife, I said, you know, if we can somehow get horses and yearlings here, and sell them in a way that makes it affordable for the general public. Either these people are all lying to me, or or there's thousands and thousands of people out there that would be interested in in becoming uh, owners in horse racing. So um, you know, I, I got to give it to my wife too. She she works harder than any woman I've ever met, and and she stood behind me and she said, you know what, let's do it then. And and we actually took equity out of our home to buy some horses. And I traveled all over North America trying to convince people to send us horses, and we ended up with 22 or 23 horses and <clears throat> 77 owners. And um, wow. that, that's that's something. You know, put it put it this way, I think we're probably one of the only areas of growth in in Canadian horse racing for sure over the last two years. And and that might be. I don't mean to sound arrogant because it's really sad, is what it is. But um, what we built here is something that can help the industry in a way that has never been done before by, by allowing the general public in, by actually building, completing and building a bridge to the general public and also building a vehicle to get other trainers there. We really have connected the general public back to this industry, and it's just a matter of time, you know, marketing, advertising, and, and hard work, and, and I truly believe it can, it can change this industry back into what it was, you know, going from the supposed sport of kings to back in the arms of the everyday man and woman where it belongs and and that's how this game started and i truly believe that's where it's going to end up you know it's interesting anthony we had a couple of guests on from australia over the last month or so and in australia they're telling me that one out of every three 
adults has some sort of ownership in a racehorse, whether it be thoroughbred or standard bred. And what they've done is exactly what you're trying to do. They've gotten very grassroots so that yep. the average the average Joe can afford to have a little piece of the horse, have a reason to go out to the track, have a reason to come out to the farm with his kids and let them see the horse, you know, and, and really build that grassroots and long term interest in the sport. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean that's I can't believe we haven't you know, we've we've gone this long without figuring it out and I think the biggest the biggest fallacy in this entire industry is that, you know, we're gonna come up with some unique wager on horse racing and everybody's gonna to flood to the tracks and it just simply isn't the case. I mean, in a lot of cases, I mean think about it, the wagering on this product has not changed in what, fifty years or more? Exactly. And you know, casinos have to change their machines and change everything everything about them every year. We haven't changed in fifty years. We keep trying to package up something that the general public doesn't want. It's very complex to wager on horse racing. You know, you can't convince a millennial or a younger kid to come out to the track and wager. It's too hard, it's too complex, too long, it's too annoying, and they'd just rather not. But I can show you how you can get them to the track, and I can almost guarantee you when they're at the track, they're going to wager. Or they're going to drink your beer, they're going to eat your chicken wings, they're going to do something, but they're going to be at your track. And, and that's... You know, that's the most important thing we have to get back to is figuring out how to get people out to our facilities. And, and a lot of the racetracks have all been given up because they can't. You know, they have bands or they have fireworks. They have whatever they have. They can get crowds out sometimes, but they can't consistently get people out to the track. That's because people don't want to wager. You know, you can't make people wager. But if you get them to the track, they likely will. And with fractional ownership, I guarantee you they come to the track. We had 77 owners last year. Well, I'll just tell you what. We had 77 owners last year. And we got the, we rented out the, the veranda at Mohawk, right? So it holds about, I don't know, about 110, 112 people. That's what capacity was for the Corona veranda that was in front of Mohawk. So I tried That's to incredible. book it. I tried to book it in a, in a night where we had horses racing, right? So I looked and I said, okay, on this night, there's going to be stake races for Colts. We have four Colts. We should be able to race something that night. You know, is it a month, the next month? Well, I don't know. One was sick. One's not good enough. We still had two colts. The week before the stake race, one colt cracked the pastern. The other colt came up sick. So not only did we not have one racing that night, we had to scratch the only one we were going to race that night at Mohawk. So you would think that maybe attendance at the Corona Veranda that night for the stable.ca might be low. We had 131 people there. Not a horse racing. In fact, one of ours was scratched, and everybody knew it. But we still had 130 people there. Because every one person that owns a share in a horse in the stable usually brings like three, four, five, six people with them out to the farm or out to the track. I mean, just compound those numbers. Spread them over, you know, scale them over 30 stables, 20 stables. You know, if we can figure out a way to get more fractional stables up and running and engage more of the general public, I guarantee you the population, the attendance, the revenue at our tracks on site will skyrocket. It's just it's simple math. It isn't a prophecy. It's, it's, it's simple math. No, and I agree with you. I think that you know, if we stay focused on actually attracting people to to the game, and we don't get too fancy, because now you know, and and you hit it right on the head, you know, with some of the the betting combinations that they're coming up with. I mean, it, it's mind-boggling to me. You know, well, it's good for uh, the people that are in the game. Maybe it's interesting for them, but for new people, it's not that interesting. And I mean. 
the, the easiest case in point is if you own a bar, right? You never ever, you never ever see a bar. Come on out to our bar. The beer's cheaper. You know, the liquor's cheaper. You buy shots cheaper. They usually always try and get you there with a band or something going on that night, something happening that you'll say, well, it should be a good bar to go to. It'll be fun to go there that night. But you rarely see people advertising for, you know, cheap liquor to get people out, unless you're in like a university or a college town. But if you're in an actual bar trying to get people out, you get them out with entertainment. You get them out with excitement. You know, you get them out with the, with the, with the chance to have a great night. And they know, you know exactly what they're going to do when they get there. They're going to drink. So, I mean, and, the same, and the same thing is, goes you don't with have the to bets. convince people to gamble. They will if you get them to the track. But, you know, when you get somebody to the bar, okay, and they belly up to the bar, they're not going to necessarily say, give me a drink that has this, 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 and this, and this. They're going to say, give me a Manhattan. Give me a martini. Exactly. Give me a beer. Okay. Yeah. If we if we come up with wagers that are just so sophisticated, like exchange wagering, who's it going to attract other than the same 62 guys that are not working and hanging out at the racetrack? Yeah, you yeah. Really, you really just, if you're really honestly, truthfully going to try and get millennials out to the track, and make no mistake, if we don't figure it a way to, we're all going to perish. Because you cannot sustain an industry on 75-year-olds and 65-year-olds because they get older, and then they pass away, and it seems that they're, their offspring don't want to have anything to do with horse racing. So for us, no. if we can't figure out a way to break into that millennial market, we're all doomed. That's a guarantee. You can continue to believe the house isn't on fire because you turn your back to it, but you better start paying attention. And we, you know, we've had lots of warnings. We've had lots of issues. You know, what happened in Ontario either has or will happen everywhere else. And if we don't figure out a way, you know, you can't have governments that run deficits and debts in every state, and federally and state and provincially, and assume that horse racing is going to be safe. I don't care if you're New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, or where you're at, if you don't start paying attention and understanding that we have to put better numbers on the board, we are all going to lose. And that's just the truth. Well, you're in there fighting. A couple of our guests that are following you on today's show, same type of thing that are fighting. You know, We all want to see this last forever. You know, We want our kids, our grandkids, you know, to be able to get behind, get behind one and and warm them up in the morning. You know, uh, we can't let it get away from us. And I, I appreciate what you're doing for the sport. I'd love to have you back on the show uh, to talk further about this and some of your other ideas. And uh, you know, we appreciate your time today. No, I appreciate it, man. I really do. I mean, I have no interest in the game sticking around. I mean. Our goal here at the stable is to bring bring this industry back mainstream. You know, it's never going to be Major League Baseball or football or, or soccer or hockey. I guarantee it's a lot better than darts and bowling. Yet I can turn the TV <laughs> on and watch both. And, and this industry is an exciting industry. The people that love sports love competitiveness and love athleticism. You know, we sit behind some of the most athletic animals on earth. And, you know, we have a lot of our drivers that truthfully live check to check. You're not going to find anything more competitive than that. So at the end of the day, we have both components that will make this sport a fantastic sport. We just have to work on it a little bit more. And, and I really believe we're on the right track and we're going to get there. Well, we'll be here for you to have a voice. That's for sure. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate Th it. Thank you. And uh, best to you. And we'll be talking with you soon. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot.
three-horse breakaway with less than an eighth to go. Gold Star Aurora trying to buckle down here. Tatayem is down the center bend to second. Prairie Cowgirl is uh, racing close from a third deep stretch. Gold Star Aurora or Tatayem. Here's the line. Gold Star Aurora trying to dig in, and she will win it once more. Gold Star Aurora takes it from a hard-charging Tatayem. Prairie Cowgirl finished third. PF Silver Classic was fourth, 155-4. and four. And that was an exciting win for Maggie Audley. Maggie, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, Les. How are you? Good, good. That was a pretty important win for you, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we are actually the breeders of Gold Star Aurora, so winning the breeders' stake is always a big deal for our farm and helping to get our name out there. And obviously that was my first paramutual win, so Gold Star Aurora was. Um, she was my first win on the cards ever, and um, it was just a really special thing to get to see her go all the way through the season. Despite that one little mishap, other than that, she she raced really well for us and went almost undefeated. <laughs> well, you had you had an incredible spring and early summer, and, and this was mm-hmm. kind of a dream come true. Uh, that's that's an understatement, <laughs> but yes, sir. <laughs> now, now, now you got the, you got there in kind of a strange way, and if if we can take a couple of steps back, because you know I've, mm-hmm. I've met your mom and and you, and you know we know know that this has not been the most traditional walk that a trainer has had <laughs> uh, to the paddock. Uh, that's Tell true. us a little <laughs> bit about what what's happened, and you know we know about, you know, I always say sometimes people succeed because they have exceptionally strong wings on their shoulders, and, and you had your father's wings on your shoulders. Tell us a little bit about what ha- ha- how you got here. Well, I appreciate that, and yes, I, it has been it's been kind of the plan always. Um, I went to college for pre vet. I have my bachelor's in biology with a minor in equine science. And something that my father decided for me a very long time ago is that I was always going to have something to fall back on because just like Mr. McDonald said, there's no guarantees in this industry unless we put the work in. So dad always wanted me to be able to fall back on something. Now, unfortunately for him, it was the horse industry. <laughs> um, so something in the horse industry is where I'm determined to be. But um, after I came back from my college, I went to Fox Valley Standard Breads and did an internship with them because they have the same sort of setup that we do. They do the breeding. They do the training when they must. And um, if they absolutely must, they do some racing as well. And um, that was always my dad's dream, is just to breed exceptional racehorses and sell them and then watch his crop go to the races. Um, And when Florida kind of started to dwindle a little and then a lot, he he took it upon himself to train more of the animals that he bred. And um, it, it was just a real wonderful thing to watch because I, I wasn't always part of the training. Um, I, I'd been sitting behind horses since I was four, but that was more of a raceway horse. What We were never really 
I wasn't ever really part of the stakes game until we had to be. And um, he, Dad had a lot of success with that, and I always took pleasure in being the groom. Um, I got a couple high fives from the Ushua for caretaker of the year and, and fun things like that. But when Dad started to get sick last year, um, it, it kind of forced me to take over the reins. And um, first year wasn't as good as I'd hoped. <laughs> um, it, it was kind of a, a hectic year for myself, my mother, and obviously my second trainer, Walter Ross Jr., who had also had a very tragic loss in his family. So we all just kind of got through our first year and, and was able to maintain ourselves. And then this year, we, we had some really good stock, and I was fortunate enough to be able to sell. I, I started with 10, and um, I was fortunate enough to be able to sell some and focus on the ones that I wanted to. Sorry about that. Um, and, and focus I, I couldn't on the tell ones. whether that was your dogs or my dogs. <laughs> no, that was me. Okay. I've got the, the door open, and she saw one of the baby horses coming up, so he freaked out a little. Um, but uh, so, yeah, we I was able to concentrate on the ones that I had. I had a couple, a couple four or three-year-olds and a couple, in my opinion, they were going to be okay two-year-olds. And um, Aurora really just jumped up and surprised us. She really wasn't supposed to be what she turned out to be. And we all know that, that <laughs> we can plan as much as we want, but life is what happens when we plan. So <laughs> she, uh, she jumped up and surprised us. And it was a true blessing to have been able to have a year like that and, and know that hard work pays off. And, you know, being having been at your barn, seeing you and your mom, uh, I mean, it, it's kind of cool watching two people working really, really, really hard and not really minding the work. And, and, and that's the feeling I got when I was at your barn. You know, you guys love love what you're doing. You love your horses. Uh, you have a great relationship with Walter. You know, it just a nice vibe when you go go to the barn. Well, we, we thank you for that, that honor of, of saying that, but it, we, um, there's always disagreements. I mean, you're going to have those in a barn, but it's especially mothers and daughters, right? <laughs> that too. Yes, sir. That too. But it always winds up being the best thing for the horse. And, and that's what we've kind of, as a family, even when dad was still with us, we had decided that arguing is not the problem if the horse doesn't benefit from your argument then it doesn't it's not a good argument so that that's something that that we always kind of try and keep in the back of our minds is if you feel strongly about something you have to speak up because if you're not going to speak up about it then you obviously don't think it's that important and as long as the animal benefits from it, the, he the health, the safety of the animal, and obviously Walter and myself who sit behind them, then, then obviously it's a moot point. But yes, sir, we, I mean, we enjoy being in the barn. We love being as a family unit, and we consider Walter family. He's been with us for a long time. And um, it's, it's just, I've been very lucky to have 
the mentors around me, not just Walter, um, John Hallett and Walter uh, and Wally Hennessy. I go and bend their ears whether they like it or not. <laughs> and to have men like that around me and willing to just kind of sit down for a few minutes and answer my questions and help me see from a different perspective has just been a, a blessing that I could never repay. Well, I think a lot of these guys look at you as the future, you know, and uh, you, you know, my parents told me never ask a woman how old she is, but I'm going to ask <laughs> you on on the radio. And, <laughs> you're what now? 20. Oh, you're sweet. I actually just turned 31 in February. <laughs> okay. So you are the future. And, uh, I, I think a lot of the guys, you know, on the backside say, well, you know, th this is if this game is going to go on, it's going to be with people like Maggie, like Anthony. Uh, you know, you guys are the future. And, and mm -hmm. it seems it seems one, one commonality between the two of you is that you guys have really not reacted, but actually thought out a plan of action. And mm -hmm. so that that's great. Uh, where, where do you see things going? Well, I, just like Anthony said earlier, I, I mean, I could not agree with every word the man said more. He, um, he's got a good idea, and obviously we have got to, as a harness racing community, do something more to promote our product, um, whether it be taking advertising upon ourselves. I know that as well as anybody, we're in the barn early, we're out of the barn late, and it's just not something that we want to do. But in Pompano, we have the luxury of having numerous businesses, um, retirement facilities around us where there are active people and there are colleges near us. There's no reason why we can't go and hand out flyers big steaks night or, or dollar hot dogs and beer night, come on out, see the races, and, and have a representative on the, on the ground tell, telling people, you know, this is how you bet. If you want to just do a nice, easy bet, bet win place show and, and pick a horse. It doesn't matter if it's because of their name or because you think it's going to go fast. Let people get there, and that's, that's one of the issues that we don't take it upon ourselves. We hope that the track is wanting to get people in, but we also have to be worried about the fact that sometimes the track is only worried about certain nights. They and, want and that's their so handle. Mm -hmm. I was they, at Pompano they, a couple – go ahead. You finish. Oh, no, it's okay. I, uh, I was just going to say, they need their handle on a certain night to be a certain amount, and that's what they're going to push for. I know that Pompano has increased their, um, their vision, and they've put a couple commercials out. They've put a couple flyers out front, but that only gets people that watch that certain station or that actually physically drive by the casino. And it, it doesn't always say live harness racing. It, it says, come win this car. And, yeah, um, people that, don't and that's very true at Pompano. No, yeah. That's very, very true. And you know, one of the things 
uh, you know, because I said Pompano a couple of weeks ago, and if there were 50 people in the crowd, it was a lot. And it's, it's kind of heartbreaking to me. Uh, and then when you talk to some of the older guys in the business, they say, well, you're never going to attract people to the racetrack anymore. Well, you go down the road to Gulfstream and the joints jumping. It's packed. Uh, so one of the things that I'm thinking is in, at Pompano and at a lot of the racetracks, what we qualify on Saturday mornings, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why not work with the track and the casino and have like breakfast at the races and bring out the kids, bring out, you know, and actually have the SBOA promote those kind of events to get people to the track. Absolutely. Simple little things. And, you know, being able to travel, um, thankfully, because the the Pompano or the Florida stake schedule is so different from the, the North, East, and Midwest, Um, I usually take about two weeks to travel to other tracks and see how they do things, Um, visit visit trainers, ask them questions, be annoying sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, at the New Meadowlands, they have glass windows on the bottom where you can sit inside if it's cold and still be able to watch the races. And at Pompano, we used to have that opportunity the whole facade of the old grandstand was glass. Exactly. And it was, I mean, it was the place to be. There are so many pictures from even 20 years ago when people were still in there and they'd bring their owners and it was a beautiful establishment that you were proud to bring your owners to. And unfortunately, the way that Pompano built their casino kind of got away from that. They do have a beautiful set of stands out front with TVs and a nice bar where if you want to go out and watch the races, you can. But to be perfectly honest with you, if people haven't been in Pompano, you you walk into the casino and you see their their beautiful five-star restaurants and then you see their their poker establishment. And there, you, you don't know that you can keep walking. And then on the other end of that shiny, bright lights of entertainment are, is real live entertainment on the backside. And that, that kind of hurt us a little in the design process is because people just don't know that there's even a large track behind them. And at Tioga, they have the, and Vernon, they have the bounce houses. They have bring your kids out on Sundays. And, you know, people say that they're, they're worried about the horses, that the horses are going to get spooked. You know, after, thankfully, they set them up on Saturday. So you can jog by them. Your horses get used to them. And after the first Sunday, they're so used to them, they don't even know. They, they enjoy having the people out there. And, and it does. It brings an extra... 200 people to the track because it's a fun day and the kids can pet ponies and they can learn about horses and um, I know the new outrider Brienne after Wendy left is just phenomenal loves to stand at the at the fence and talk to people and um, it's that kind of personalization that that really helps bring the customers back getting there getting them there is wonderful but you always want them to come back you want them to feel like it was a fun family place to be and even though there's gambling there should still be things 
for people who want to learn and kids. And, um, I mean, that's, if we want to get the young crowds in there, we got to have things pointed towards the younger crowds. And that's how I feel is that it should be more fun on the tarmac. Well, I, I agree with you. You're spot on, especially in Florida where we don't have the, the fairs that some other states have. Mm-hmm. So we've, you know, because the fairs have always been a great way to induce families out to the races. We yeah. don't have that in Florida. So what we have to really do, in my opinion, is f- use our racetrack in the same way. And you're right, mm-hmm. you know, the fun stuff for the kids. You know, I know a couple of years back they had the food truck invasion and people mm-hmm. liked that that kind of stuff. I ate too much, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of great stuff that that we can do. And with young folks like yourself and, you know, Anthony and, and, and you know, I go to the backside at Sunshine Meadows. And there's a lot of young people that really want this to work. I'm sure it's yeah. going to work. We just have to get past where we're at right now. And if yeah. if we as a show can help, you know, we're here for you. Uh, love having you on board. Uh, say hello to mom for me. Uh, Definitely and will. Ho- hopefully we get you on a few more times, Maggie. Uh, especially after you've won, won some races. And uh, we'll also talk about the breeding operation at the farm. Yes, definitely. That I would love to do that. We, um, Florida has actually opened up our borders a little bit, and um, there's a new really exciting way that FSBOA is trying to get people in. And um, as long as your mare folds in Florida and is bred back to a Florida stallion, the foal that results from that first breeding is actually Florida eligible. Um, and we at Gold Star Farm have taken advantage of that. We actually just had a rock and roll dance foal hit the ground. And um, it's, it's really exciting. We're hoping that people hear about this. The breeders, the $1,000 breeders incentive is still in play. And um, so we're hoping that the money and the opportunity that we're handing to people is going to encourage at least some increase in our numbers for the next few years. Now, Maggie, does the farm have a website? Um, I actually removed the website and put it on Facebook because obviously I was reaching more people on Facebook. Um, and it is, it's just Gold Star Farm, uh, facebook.com backslash Gold Star Farm. And um, if I'm not updating my personal Facebook, I'm updating the Gold Star Farm website. But and some of your personal um, updatings, quite frankly, are embarrassing to me. Uh, you know, especially <laughs> your foot, especially your football updates. You know, other um, than that, you, you know, know, not everybody can be a Packers fan, but we try. <laughs> okay. Again, Maggie, a pleasure. We look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks for being Absolutely on the show. Less. Thank you so Take much. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. And after these few words, we'll have Freddie Hudson. Where only the best of the best are offered. Where only the best progeny from international bloodlines and champion stallions go. 480 of Australia and New Zealand's finest yearlings, carefully selected with 146 lots from stakes winning mares, including 22 Group 1 winners. The 2017 English Australian Easter yearling sale. April 4 to 6 at Newmarket, Sydney. For information, visit English.com.au. English Easter, the best of the best. 
I got a pacer in mind with the fastest time. He's in the third race, the driver's an ace. So make a bet tonight when the moon is bright. He's nine to one, and he can get the job done. And Roosevelt Raceway. Roosevelt Raceway. Come and wager again the daily double, my friend. First and second race, I trot in the pace. You can win a lot, get your cash on the spot. The feeling is right, it's an exciting night. And Roosevelt Raceway. Have a drink and a meal, it's so much fun. Watching them go on their big mile run. Two times around, towards the finish, they're bound. The best in the world with that hoofbeat sound. And Roosevelt Raceway. And Roosevelt Raceway. And Roosevelt Raceway. And Roosevelt Raceway. Well, we have to uh, get the Equisport dancers off the stage right now and make room for Freddie Hudson. Freddie, how you doing? Good, Les, and uh, thank, thank you for inviting me on the show. And after that introduction, I'm done. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that song, you know, uh, Trade Martin wrote the song. And, you know, a lot of people are not familiar with Trade, but uh, he was a Grammy winner. Um, he wrote the B.B. Um, King song, um, Peace to the World. And uh, he's done, like, a lot of other work for, um, he's done some, yeah, we're working on a documentary about Roosevelt Raceway. And uh, we're going to have that available at the reunion that's going to be on July 22nd at the Meadowlands. And then the full version will be released in the fall of 2017. No, the, the song is great. And you and your involvement with Roosevelt Raceway, actually, if there's a harness racing schizophrenic, it's Freddie Hudson. Because he's, <laughs> he's so into the history of the game, and yet... He's probably one of the more visionary or forward-looking guys in the sport. So he's, he's a little bit here, a little bit there. Freddie, let's talk about Roosevelt first, and then we'll talk about some of the things that, that you see in the future. You, you, okay. have the, you have the reunion coming up. You, you've created the Hall of Fame. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, I have the um, Roosevelt Raceway Hall of Fame on the website. And I just sort of looked around for drivers that were forgotten. These are the guys who raced in front of 40 and 50,000 people, um, pretty much 25,000 people every night. And history just sort of forgot them. And so I said, you know, this doesn't make any sense. This is wrong. So I just started promoting the um, drivers. And I just started adding a page. I'd find some videos. Uh, family members would send me pictures. Um, the, 
Ocean Hall of Fame would send me some pictures. Uh, Mike Lizzie, uh, he did a great job. Uh, he actually dumpster dived and saved about a couple thousand pictures that were going to be trashed when Roosevelt Raceway was you know, being knocked down. So I've put a lot of that stuff together and just started with that website. And it's just led from one thing to another. And then you have the reunion coming up. Yes. Tell, tell me, that's in J- uh, July, right? That, that's going to be uh, July 22nd at the Meadowlands. Um, uh, Hervé is going to be there. Uh, Carmine's going to be there. Um, Insto might be there. I'm pretty sure Lucian Fontaine's going to be there. Uh, Benny Webster's going to be there. Uh, Don Martellus just called me up this morning. He's going to be there. Uh, Frank Popfinger, Coco Cormier's coming in. Uh, we're, uh, Bobby Vetrano, uh, Bob Rayner, who was famous for Momentous. We're going to have a Momentous book over there. Uh, we're going to have an updated version of the Roosevelt Raceway book available also. And um, we're working on getting hats for everyone right now. And, uh, you know, that would be amazing. Work. If you got those guys behind the gate at once... What a race. Uh, huh? we're, probably, we're probably all kill ourselves nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, we're, look, we're looking to put a sons race together, and we, we got a pretty good lineup of sons. Uh, you know, Eric um, Abatello, um, Pat Lachance, just to mention a few, Joe Borgiano, uh, you know, represented dancers. I'm going to try to get and see if Donnie Dancer wants to race. He's still racing. But um, we, we, we have a good bunch of drivers, and we have enough to uh, put a sons race together. Um, and we're going to have Randy Lee, Jackie Lee's son, call the race. And Randy, nice. you know, he was the, you know, Jack was considered the voice of Roosevelt Raceway. And so you know, yeah. we're trying to put it together. We're trying to put it together. You know, it's it's great that you're doing it. What what made you get so fascinated with Roosevelt? Um, I, I think that when I just saw that the sport was deteriorating, and then I just started looking back to see what Roosevelt Raceway did. I actually went back to Yonkers Raceway when they first opened. There's an interesting story there, too. But uh, with Roosevelt, Roosevelt revolutionized the sport of harness racing. And the direction that we're heading right now, we're heading exactly back to where we were before Roosevelt Raceway opened. We're going to be racing on the fair circuit, and the only thing that's going to survive is the grand circuit. We don't change our and fix our product. Uh, Roosevelt introduced nighttime racing uh, in New York, paramutual racing, and then later on the starting gate. These were the three elements that made harness racing. So what does our industry do now? We race in the afternoon. You know, <laughs> we race between 4 and 8 o'clock at some tracks. Uh, we're not promoting the sport properly. The sport is broken in every direction that you look. And we have to fix these problems. And that includes getting rid of the beard trainers and getting rid of the druggists. Um, and once we fix the product, then we can market it. Um, we need to go be marketing at equine events like the steeplechase races. I look at these steeplechase races, and they have 70,000 people showing up, paying 100 bucks a person to get in. This is what's wrong with <laughs> We need to be advertising there. We need to be copying what they're doing. And if we could make more money on admissions than we do on the handle, we're going in the right direction. Well, you know, th- that that's very true. And I don't know if you heard Anthony at the beginning of the show, Anthony McDonald. And he, he was talking about you know, just getting the people through the gate. And Maggie, oddly, who was on just before you, same thing. Get the people through the gate. 
you know, and is it an identity problem? Has the sport lost its identity? It's a, that it's a, it's a, it's a, We have to fix the product. I have gotten people through the gate, and they have told me they're never going back. <laughs> so, uh, so we now, have to fix the product. Why is that? And I'm not being a wise guy because, you know, free, I cut my teeth at Freehold. Uh, I went back there several months ago. Kind of tell you, and please, if you're listening and you're a Freehold fan, don't take this the wrong way. Was there. There were about 30 guys. I was the youngest guy, and I'm 64. Okay. It was sad. Now, yep. if you brought people through the gate and they saw that, they may be rushing back to get tested for tuberculosis. I mean, yep. well, that, that, that's one of the problems. You, you hit the head on the nail. Um, if we're going after the upper middle class clientele, they're not going to blend in with our current clientele. And we have to sort of migrate them in. Uh, you know, like one of the things you know, I've spoke about, you know, let's open our tracks up and start doing tailgating and basically have people come in on a tailgate section and then gradually blend them together. You know, I've been following a lot what the uh, thoroughbred industry is doing, and they put a lot of money into saving their sport. And my plan when I was running for the presidency at the USDA was to sort of Tag along, grab their shirt tail and tag along. Let them spend the money and let us take some of the ideas. <laughs> and, and that makes a lot of sense because if somebody else is doing something that's working, why shouldn't you do yep. something similar? And then you have know, the Hong Kong Jockey Club. What they did out there, they basically to get the younger crowd in. They uh, they analyzed it and they said, well, if if you give them a program to look at. It's like handing someone the uh, Wall Street Journal and saying that um, you're now an investor. Uh, so we have to change the way that people can handicap, and they've come out with a simulator where the younger people can actually simulate the outcomes of the races, and it's brought thirty and 40,000 people signing up for the app in one week. <laughs> so. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting that you say that, because that's one of my pet peeves with the standard bread industry, okay, is that we... We safeguard our information so that the public can't get to it. So, for example, if I wanted to look up the information about a horse and I went to the USTA site, first of all, it's very difficult to navigate to get find that information. And second of all, it's going to cost me money. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the only breed, the only racing breed that makes the basic information. I'm not talking about handicapping information, but the basic information about the horse, almost impossible to get, including yep. stallions. But that's a whole different story. So I, I agree with you. You know, if if we put up obstacles, and there's other alternatives that don't have obstacles, people are going to take the course of least resistance. Yep. Exactly. Uh, By the way, I that's my editorial that. for the day. I'll keep quiet now and I'll let you talk. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've been also following what the thoroughbred industry has been doing. And, you know, they they did an intensive survey of the fans, not only uh, racing fans, but football fans, basketball fans. They surveyed everyone and asked them about the sports and how to get people out to the tracks and stuff. Um, most people who go to the track have been were taken there by a friend or a family member. Uh, that's how basically people, the young uh, horse players, are going to the track. Um, 
most of the horse players will not recommend the sport to um, uh, other to other people. Um, but there's but the other thing that they came up with, which surprised me, was that the bedding we have is too complicated. People can't exactly. figure it out. And when so, if you go back and you look at the history of like Roosevelt. You look, they did the best handles when they had wind place and show and a daily double and a couple of tactics. Pretty easy for people to figure out. Uh, now you have like 50 cents and 10 cents, um, six sixes, six eights, whatever, and they're too complicated. And people just, even the, average, even the daily horse players don't play them because they're too complicated. <laughs> if you go to a racetrack and you look at the first few pages of the program, and you look at the betting alternatives, and I understand that you know we want to have a smorgasbord type of thing where everybody can kind of pick and choose what they like. But heck, yep. it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming for the first time, second time, fifth time person that's coming out there because they really like horses. It's a beautiful afternoon or a beautiful evening, and then we make it so tough. We make it so complex. Uh, yep. So I agree with you, and I think uh, my previous two guests are, are in the same boat. But but we're, maybe we're looking at it from the horseman's perspective, not the fans' perspective. What do you right. think? Uh, well, another thing I, I agree 100%. We have to look at it for the fans. Without fans, and Heart Innovation doesn't have too many left, uh, but we'll be out of business. Uh, one of the other things I think that we should work with the casinos, and we should try and get some of our betting windows inside the casino or extend them outside where we can have people betting and improve improve things. You know, at this particular point, when you go to the tracks, I mean, like Pompano, I've been to Pompano, and they got this little bar section over there for the horsemen. It's not even it's not even by the winter circle. It's, <laughs> it's off-center, and to find it takes about 10 minutes. Um, the Meadowlands has done a great job with their facility. Uh, they have the decks out there, a very, very modern track, and I think all tracks should start copying, copying their design. Um, Yonkers, you know, Yonkers just has a small section. Um, you go through the casino, and you go out to, uh, they got some outside windows there, and you look up at the um, dining area, it's usually empty. Um, Rosecroft, you know, it's, they probably have about 300 people there, and they've now leased their parking lot out to MGM Grant's employees. <laughs> and that tells that tells the whole story, doesn't it? Yep. <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah. Yeah. And we were older guys, so we remember the days where, you know, on big race nights, the parking lots were overfilling. With I mean, it was yep. tough to find a space. Now, you know, they're they're leasing out to casinos to use car dealerships, whatever. But and and you know maybe it's a, the times you know Freddie maybe people aren't going to come to the track as much as they used to because there's so much competition but we got to get some folks there well, and we got to get know, some young folks of, you know, there. Every, everyone says that, but if you take take a look at it and you look at it from a bigger picture, you know if we go back to the 1940s and you know 1950s there were what 200 million people in the country now we're over 300 million. So the people are there. We're just not giving them something that they want. And we, we have to give them something that they want and the people will come. Event-style racing is, uh, I think we have to make it events. Look how successful the Pegasus was down there. 
I, I mean, that they were charging a hundred dollars uh, for general admission, if I'm not mistaken. You're and right. Pretty much had to had to turn people away. The people are there. We're just not giving them what they want, and so that's what we have to do. We have to give them something that they want, where they want to come to the track, and they want to enjoy themselves. And a guy's going out on a date right now. If, if he took a girl to a track and he knew anyone over there, she'd never see him again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's so true. Uh, I'm, I'm laughing because when I was a kid, you took somebody to the racetrack and you, you seemed like, you know, if you brought them up to the dining room, you know, you look like the big guy in town. Now no. <laughs> you go to the dining room and, you know, they're serving in styrofoam. So it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a different world. What I'd like to do, and I don't mean to cut our interview short, but we're running a little bit late. I'd okay. like to maybe get with you and we'll get maybe four or five people and really do a roundtable and possibly send something back up to the USTA from that roundtable. Okay. Does that uh, sound right. viable I, I, to you? I, I, I think I have some people that might be interested in joining on that. <laughs> I think you do. Let, let's let's talk about that over the next week or two, Freddie. I okay, appreciate you coming on board. I, I love that song. I'm, I'm I've got to figure out how to put that on my phone as a ringtone. Uh, <laughs> when you figure that out, tell me because I'll do the same. <laughs> okay, uh, Freddie. Thanks for joining us. This has been Equisport Media's Hubrel Insider. A pleasure being with our three guests, Anthony McDonald's, Maggie Audley, and Freddie Hudson. And we're out of here. We'll see you real soon. <laughs>